Children are dismissed back to Praise Factory. Uh, if you turn in your Bibles, we're going to be reading this morning uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Um, I, uh, I'm, going to be, I'm going to be speaking next week about uh, the state of the church part 2. And uh, I realize that I have some work to do beforehand uh, before I, I share that. And so um, we'll, be, we'll be looking in 1 Corinthians this morning. Uh, we're going to read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 27, <clears throat> and then spend some time focusing on one singular verse from that text. Um, I want to bring your attention to, as well, on the 28th of February here, uh, I believe it's 8.30 in the morning, we're going to be having an, a, a training called Love Your Neighbor, Share Christ. Uh, I'm excited about what's happening within our Baptist convention on the state level uh, there, there are a number of opportunities and resources, and, and one of the things that I've, I've heard on a regular basis from people at Harvest is, is how can we become more engaged with our community? How can we, how can we learn to share Christ with our neighbors? How can we uh, make the church a, a more friendly place in terms of, of, of making it accessible to unbelievers? And then how can we make sure that we're actually doing the work of evangelism and discipleship? Uh, and so uh, my friend Doug Dubois will be coming. And, uh, and, and, and training us on February 28th. So put that on your calendar. And, uh, and let me say this as well. If, if you uh, did not put your email address on a card uh, to get onto our email list, uh, some information about that, that day is going to be going out. And uh, you'll have an opportunity to get uh, to, to sign up for that by email. Um, and, uh, and so just please give us your info. Uh, there there's going to be communication that you're never going to be part of, things you're never going to know about if you're not on the email, just because of the, the limited amount of time we have up front to make announcements. So, that being said, reading scripture, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12, begins this way. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the hand to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require." But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ, 
and individually members of it. Let's pray. Father, we come before you with thankful hearts because you speak to us despite our sinfulness. We come to you this morning, a mixed group of people gathered to hear this message. There are some in here who do not know you, who have not surrendered what they know of themselves to what they know of you. They have not repented of their sins and put their faith and trust in you. And yet, you have not destroyed them. And so we thank you that you speak despite the sin which is credited to many of our accounts. Lord, and we come before you, some of us, as those who have heard heard your word, and yet throughout the week or the month or the days of our lives, we have failed to heed your word having heard it. We've failed to obey it. We've failed to battle temptation or to fight back against sin. And so we come with sins on our conscience. And yet you have not destroyed us. You speak to us. And so we thank you for that. We pray that as we hear your words, that we would hear them with a spirit of repentance and that we would seek to bring ourselves in conformity with your will. We know that no human being, this is what the Bible tells us, is righteous in your sight, save one, your son, Jesus Christ. And we know that he went to the cross, that he might take our sins from us. And he was raised for our justification, that that his righteousness might be credited to us, to those who have repented of their sins and believed in the gospel. And so we pray that we would be faithful to hear and to apply your word to our hearts. One, that those who have not put their faith and trust in Christ may do so. And being freed from their sins, walk in gratitude. And two, that those of us who have put our faith and trust in Christ might renew our repentance in areas perhaps where we have long forgotten our responsibilities or our duty. We pray, Father, mindful of the fact that we hear your word and there are those who do not, like the 140,000 Hajang people of Bangladesh, who have no hope of hearing your word today because no one is preaching the gospel to them. We pray that you would deliver them from Hinduism and bring the gospel to them, Lord, by your grace and for your glory. We ask as we open up this word that you would speak to us now, challenge our hearts, convict us, shape us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I thought about what is to come in in terms of the the message that I'll be sharing next week, the State of the Church Part 2, I intentionally am am planning to to share one message a month on the third Sunday when we gather to eat and to fellowship together, that that the message might, might lead us into a discussion during our time of fellowship, and that we might be saying, how can we being the church of Christ, excel still more in the ministry which has been given to us? How can we we live out the commission that we've been given by God? And it occurred to me that that as we're talking about the the ministry of the church, which is an area in which we want to focus in 2015, that it is not profitable to speak about the ministry of the body without speaking first about the ministry of the parts. It's not wise to speak about the theology of the building unless we talk about the theology of the brick. 
And so we land on, on this verse for our focus this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27, that says, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. It's impossible to talk about the whole unless we address the parts. 1 Peter 2.5 says that you yourselves are like living stones that are being built up as a spiritual house. Jesus describes his church, his family, his friends as the branches and himself as the vine. Uh, I am the vine, you are the branches. He says that apart from him, we can do nothing. We know much of the vine, and we know much about what we're called to do as we abide in the vine, but do we know what it means to be a branch? Do we know what it means to have a vital connection to Christ flowing through us? I believe in those areas where our knowledge is incomplete, or it's deficient, or we're in rebellion against it, I believe those are the areas which harm the body as a whole, which damage the the, the work of the whole vine, the, the whole vine as it's made up of both the central vine, which is Christ, and the branches. One of the battle cries of the Reformation was, let the church be the church. Let us throw off, the idea was, all those trappings which, which the, uh, the Roman Catholic Church had placed onto uh, the, the, the church throughout Europe. And then, and then let's, let us throw that off. Let's, let's cast off all the traditions and superstitions and false practices and let the church be the church. And then later in England, as the, the, um, the, the, the Episcopal Church was, was grappling with all of the traditions that, that were false, the Puritans said, let the church be the church. Let's throw off the things which are not essential that we might be who Christ called us to be. Now the church is the body of Christ on the earth. Our head is in heaven. But the church is here, the spirit of God indwelling believers, the body of Christ on earth. And that means that the church is the channel, the conduit, the the means, the vessel of grace by which God brings his grace into the world And that is that which he draws new believers into. Families produce children and enfold those children into their midst, into the family. That's the natural way of things. The New Testament church is described as a kingdom of priests. And so if the church is going to reform, if the church is going to have a priestly ministry, if the the members, if the the parts of the body are going to, to effectively as a whole minister as a kingdom of priests, the priests are going to have to learn to be priests. The believers are going to, 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 need to be set free to be believers. And one of the ways in which we accomplish that is through teaching the believer how to live as a believer. To teach the brick to be a brick. That the bricks might come together and be a building. So how do we know the church when we see it? Uh, you'll, you'll remember, I hope. Uh, if you don't, I will rebuke you later. Uh, but I'll do it kindly. Um, you'll, you'll remember, hopefully, that we know the church when we see it because the church has particular marks. 
right? The church has those, those marks, those aspects of it which are essential to its being, which if they are not there, the church cannot rightly be said to be a church. And then there are those marks of the church which contribute to its well-being. If they are not there, the church may be there, but it will not be healthy and strong. The, the essence of the church is that the church is made of visible saints. We believe that the church in its right form is only made up of believers, that there are no unbelievers as part of the church. Now, there may be those who are not strong in faith or, or firm in their commitment to the gospel in the crowd within the church, but the church itself ought to be believers, those who have who've repented of their sins, put their faith and trust in Christ, see evidence of, of the working of the Holy Spirit in their lives and are, are saying, yes, Jesus is precious to me and I follow him. That is, is who the church ought to be. The church ought to also ought to be uh, organized around a covenant. There ought to be word and sacrament present in the church, preaching to the conscience, and then baptism in the Lord's Supper regularly celebrated. Those are the essential three marks of the church. And then there are those things which are good for the church, beneficial to it, which make it strong. One is profession, a clear articulation of what it is that we believe. And then a church ought to have a ministry. And the ministry of the church, this is next week, ought not be dependent on an individual or a select few ministers. There ought to be personal and corporate ministries of the church of which I believe in a, in, a, in a large sense there are two ministries of the church. There is the redemptive work of the church, which is drawing people in to the fellowship, evangelizing, establishing people in their faith, equipping them with the skills that they need to live, and then extending them out into ministry. That's the redemptive work of the church. And that will not last forever. When the church is, is drawn in, when all the believers are, are gathered and Christ comes to, to take his church home and we are in heaven together as the body of Christ for all eternity, there will be no more redemptive work. Evangelism and missions will fade away. There will be no praying for unreached people groups in heaven. Instead, there will be the second ministry of the church which exists now and will last into eternity and that is the relational work of the church exalting God in all of life encouraging and being encouraged enfolding into our midst and then experiencing God in our daily lives through his providential work the ministry of the church more on that next week that's that's next week um, the the discipline is the is the uh, the sixth mark. Now, we tend to mostly view discipline or church discipline as a, as a negative, and we think of, of pastors or leaders out of control or people nosing into our business. Um, we, and when, we, when we think of discipline that way, we have a, we have a wrong view of the, the gracious ministry of the church confronting unrepentant sin and urging humble repentance. That's, that's what the, the process of church discipline is designed for. But there's a, there's a positive view of church discipline that we ought to also embrace, and that is, that is this, that the community ought to teach and encourage self-control, which is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Galatians 5.23 says that. And Hebrews 12.14 says, Strive for peace with everyone. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And so you've, you've sometimes perhaps seen these, these uh, flocks 
that's a good word for them, of, of runners around SU. Have you ever seen this? The, the running team is out there, you know, and there's usually, there's like the bold, awesome guy or bold, awesome gal who's like out in front, like I am running and nothing makes me tired, right? And you see that person, you're like, oh, somebody's running. And then you realize there's a pack of them because like 20, 30, 40, 80, 120 steps behind them is like the pack. And they're all like, <laughs> right? And they're like, they're like hitting one another. Like, let's go, let's go, keep going, keep going, keep going. Right? The, the, the group that stays together and that runs the race together. They're, they're a family, kind of. They're helping one another. That's what the believers ought to do. It ought to be, hey, lay that aside. Leave that, leave that sin behind. Come on, come on, come on, come on, let's go. Let's run the race with endurance and head towards Christ. Self-control, resist that sin, embrace this good and godly thing, and let's, let's run the race together. Strive for peace, Hebrews says, with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The Spirit's in you, causing you to hate sin and to love Christ. Let's run in that direction together as a church. That's how discipline ought to be viewed largely. So, I think there's a formula. This is, this is my theology of the brick. Um, this is part of it. This is, there's a formula, a theology for creating a ministry within a church, for, for letting ministry loose, for, for the church as a whole engaging and saying, yes, we are going to, to minister to the needs of believers and to reach out and draw people in and to minister for them. Most of that is going to be next week. But here's the formula. <coughs> Visible saints, right, believers, plus self-discipline, plus direction equals ministry, okay? And the rest of the year is going to be spent kind of building that out as we, as we gather on the third Sunday of the month and hear the word and then go and eat together. Okay, but the, the foundational component there is that believers need self-discipline in order for the church to have effective ministry. There, there need to be disciplined believers. And I don't mean like negative discipline, like stop doing that or stop doing this. Or, you know, the, the, the pastor or the elders know every little detail of your lives and are, 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 are telling you spend money on this and go here and do that and don't do this and don't do that, you know. And, and no, that's not what we're talking about. What we're saying is that, is that believers say, I, I must be under spirit control. I must be self-controlled. I must, I must know what it is that I'm called to do by God and then live out those responsibilities in the daily life. A disciplined believer. A disciplined believer is the one who is most able, or who is able, rather, to most effectively and helpfully aid the ministry of the local church. The disciplined believer is the one who is able to most effectively and helpfully aid the ministry of the local church. The carnal believer, the one who says, I am, I am a believer in Christ and yet they seem to have no standards or no sense of their responsibilities or, or nothing. You know, they, 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 they just embrace what they call grace without any limits. You know, there's no, there's no guidelines or restrictions in them. What they will do is corrupt and pollute the ministry of the church. Much in the way that if you don't get a rotten apple out of the bag in the bottom of your fridge, it will corrupt the whole bunch, right? That's, that's what it's like. And so, so, so the, the carnal believer is not 
most effectively able to help the church. The undisciplined believer is erratic in their faith. Sometimes they're doing well. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're, they're strong in the scriptures. Sometimes they're not, right? Sometimes they're like, let's, let's, let's do things and change the church and advance and go and grow. And, and, then, and then you're like, yes, let's take your ideas and put them into practice. And then they're like, I'm busy, right? Because they're undisciplined. They're, they're, they're like a, a, a plastic bag in the wind kind of blowing everywhere, you know? That's what, that's what the undisciplined believer is like. The willing unbeliever will come along to the church and will say, I want to feel a connection to the work of this church. I want to be used, but they cannot be used if the Holy Spirit is not in them, right? Have you ever pulled up to a, to a store? I've done this several times. You, you pull up and you're like, yes, gas station, right? Fuel, food, supplies, right? Like I will, I will fuel my car and I will fuel myself. And you like walk up to the door. Maybe you're not paying hundred percent attention. Maybe you've gotten like 10 text messages while you're driving and your self-discipline is such that you do not read any of them. And you're like, I need to reply to them. And you're like walking towards the, the, the gas station door. And you realize as you collide with the door that it's closed, right? Maybe it's been closed for a long time, right? It, it's, it's, it's like a, it's this mirage. Like you thought, here I was going to be supplied. This would work. But, but it doesn't because it's closed. No gas. No fuel for your car. No fuel for you. The unbeliever who is allowed to minister in the church, who's put in places of responsibility, cannot be a conduit for the Holy Spirit and cannot build up the church because God is not in them working through them. They will produce only fumes and frustration. The new believer is full of excitement and is eager to take the world by storm, but without direction and guidance from experienced, older, seasoned believers, they may burn out quickly or damage the work of ministry. Like my toddler with a power tool. So I was on a retreat a number of years ago with a, at my brother's church. Um, I, was, I was teaching, and I met a guy who's a structural engineer and an architect, kind of done a whole bunch of jobs, and, and now he does consulting with businesses and uh, related to their, their physical facilities. And I said to him, I said, hey, I got a question for you. I asked him a bunch of questions, but, but one of them, and he must have thought I was kind of erratic, because I, I store up questions in my mind. Like if I ever meet an astronomer, I'm going to be like, hey, I've got 15 questions for you. And the guy's going to be like, are these related? Yes, in my brain, but they won't seem related to you. So I'm asking this guy a bunch of questions. I ask him, I say, I say, hey, if there's a great big brick building, and I go up to that building, and I cut out a brick from it, right, with a, with a chisel, and I pull that brick out, and I throw it away, what will happen? And he said, that hole that you create will eventually destroy the whole building. Now, the building may be torn down or whatever long before that, but, but the structural weakness that you introduce allows the elements to, to enter in and to destroy the building. The believer who is not present in the church, who has no self-discipline, who doesn't know what he or she believes or, and is not, is not present there to be relied upon in the church, damages the work of the church. And so the brick needs to know 
what it needs to do. The, the believer who is in a position of ministry in the church must know how to maintain their vital connection to Christ and to contribute to the work of the body of Christ. Now, let's just think about what must the believer do in connection with Christ in themselves within themselves, in order to be one who can be relied upon to carry out a ministry. What, what must a brick be? Okay, let's, let's talk. I want to talk about two large areas, okay? One, which we'll just touch on briefly, and then one which we'll spend more time on. Uh, the first is the crucifixion of sins. That's one area. The believer must be must be aware of what's going on in their own heart and actively engaged in the process of cooperating with the Holy Spirit of God within them, crucifying their sins. And second, their second duty, and this is the one which we're going to spend more time on, is the stirring up of themselves to their responsibilities. Okay, let's talk about the crucifixion of sins. The believer must be diligent to resist the devil and to fight being conformed to the image of the world. That's, that's the, the image that I've always been in, in my mind. Is My kids used to have this uh, Bob the Builder Play-Doh set. Right? You guys remember Bob the Builder? You remember Play-Doh? My wife doesn't like the way Play-Doh smells. So Play-Doh never really hung around very long in our home. But, but while it was there, what we would often do is uh, when, we, when we played together, when the kids played together, you would take this lump of like it would get all mixed, you know, so, so it's like blue, red, yellow Play-Doh, you know, that, that, that flavor. It's kind of like a camo that, that would never conceal anyone. You take that lump of Play-Doh and you, you put it in the, in the Bob the Builder mold, right? And then you smash the two halves together and all the extra Play-Doh oozes out. And then you take that like pathetic, sad butter knife that they give you in the Play-Doh and you cut away the excess and you're like, you, you open it up and you're like, ta-da, you know, it's Bob the Builder. Here he is. Can he fix it? Yes, he can. Right? You know, so, so here, here is, this is what the world wants to do. The world says, you've got all these extra beliefs. You've got all these things that you don't need because the world hates God and resists him. That's what the world, world means in the, in, in the Bible. It's a system of thought that's hostile to God, that's consistent with our fallen nature. And the world says, we're going to pressure you and crush you and mash you until all that extra stuff leaks out. And then we'll present you conformed to our image. We're to resist that because we're being conformed to the image of, of Christ, whom the world crucified. The believer needs to be diligent to resist the devil and to resist being conformed to the image of the world. But we need to focus, we're going to focus on the believer's need to resist his own self, to resist his own sinful desires because the devil may entice to sin and the world may give approval and respectability and opportunity to sin. But the believer... The individual is the one who makes the decision to sin. And that, in comparison to the other parts, is the largest part. If one brother says, no one will catch you if you sneak money out of dad's wallet. And the other brother says, I steal money all the time and I never get caught. And then the other brother decides to steal. Who plays the greatest part in the commission of the crime? 
The first two are wrong, but the third committed it, right? And so we may think, oh, the devil, the devil, fight the devil, the devil is my big enemy. It's true, the devil's your enemy. The world, the world pressing on me, seeking to conform me into its image. Yes, the world is your enemy. But the one with whom you have the most to do, the one who ultimately decides what to do is yourself. There's this cartoon that came out a number of years ago. Um, it's, the series is called Pogo, right? I never was much of a big fan, but, but the cartoon that I used to see circulated around uh, Pogo, the, the main character was saying to one of the other characters, we have seen the enemy and he is us. Think about that. Not funny? All right. It wasn't necessarily meant to be funny, uh, but the point being, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> When we look at, at who our enemies are in the Christian life, yes, the world is there and is providing the, the field or the seedbed for sin, and the devil is the one saying, sin, go ahead and sin, it's okay, you'll get away with it. But the one who, who lusts after sin, the one who desires it, the one who engages in it and ultimately resists the will of God and disobeys is us. We are the enemy. And so the believer must put sin to death within himself. Why? One, it's commanded. Colossians 3.5 says this, put to death, the word is murder. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. That verse probably contains all of our problems. Second, we're to put sin to death because it's evidence that we are God's. Galatians 5.24 says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We're active in that work, putting sin to death. It is such a violent activity, such a, a forceful activity, that, that Paul, in describing it, uses the word crucify for the process. If we have three enemies, and if the world bullies and the devil tempts, but the flesh is the one that wars against it. Our obligation is to fight the greatest enemy first. 1 Peter 2.11 says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. How do we crucify sin? We've talked quite a bit about this as a church. Um, and so I'm just going to summarize and, and cover this area quickly. Thomas Watson in his book, The Christian Soldier, says that, that we are to crucify our sinful desires. He just lists two steps. He says this, he says, first, withdraw the fuel that makes the fire burn. Withdraw the fuel that makes the fire burn, right? If you are grappling with, with covetousness or dissatisfaction, let's say, in your marriage, right? And you find that that is coming from, from a friend who's constantly telling you what a wretched person your spouse is. That's fuel for the fire. If you can't control your, your covetous desire because you spend hours and hours and hours watching the, the glamorous lifestyles of people on television and you think, I must find a way to have that, cut that out, right? Many, many, many needless expenditures come from spending an enormous amount of time on Amazon, which I think can now send you everything, right? And pretty soon they'll be doing it by drone, right? It'll be coming right and landing on your, on your front yard. And that's not something I'm particularly worried about, drones landing in my front yard. I'm more worried about what it's going to cost to, to, have, to be like, kids, look, the drone is coming, you know? 
withdraw the fuel that makes the fire burn, right? A boiling pot will cease to boil if you turn the heat off and if you remove it from the heating element. The water will return to a normal temperature. So withdraw the fuel that makes the fire burn. But second, fight against fleshly lusts with spiritual weapons. And we have two, and they are faith and prayer. Faith and prayer. Faith in the promises of victory and help. Is the Bible true? We say yes. But so often we only mean that generally. Think of, think of the, the power contained in this kind of fighter verse, the, the promise of victory and health, help. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Can I resist this temptation? Is, is that described somewhere in the vast description of the words all and things? Yes, right? We, we can do it because we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. The, the, the matter at hand is do we believe that that is true when it comes to what we are specifically fighting against? Temptations to sin, Jesus says, are sure to come. And so when temptation comes and, and we feel it, and we identify, yes, the, the, the devil is, is cheerleading the sin and the world is saying, go ahead and, and do it. But I realize that, that I want to give in and I say, no, I'm not going to give in. But the temptation and the power is so great. Do I actually believe that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? Do I believe that or do I not? And so we fight with faith in promises of victory. I say, yes, that is true. I can. Romans 6.14, another powerful general promise. Sin will have no dominion over you. Do you feel like you're being pushed around by your sins? Do you believe that? And do you fight the good fight? Do you fight your spiritual combat on the basis that sin will have no dominion over you because God said it would not? We could spend a whole bunch of time on Romans 6. Thomas Watson says that Samson's strength lay in his hair, but our strength lies in our head, who is Christ. Christ who gives us strength. And then the second weapon is prayer. Prayer. Lord, help me, Peter cried out. Imagine if, if, if Peter had been like, oh, okay, you know, I'm in this troubling situation. I'm, I'm standing out on the water and, and I've taken my eyes off Christ and I'm beginning to sink. Uh, I, need, I need to find a, a place to pray, right? You know, and I need to really think about what I need to pray for and I need to, I need to, I need to get ready to pray and I need to get my prayer list and my Bible and I need to, I need to or even at the bottom of the water drowned, right? Right? He's in the middle of a, of a troubling situation and he cries out in faith, Lord, help me. Right? The psalmist says, I am yours, save me. These, these battle cries, these cries for help, help me now, help me here. You've promised, you put your spirit within me, help me. Help me crush this sin. Uh, one of the things that, that Doug, who will come 
to, uh, to teach, love your neighbor, share Christ. One of the, one of the six portions of the, of the evangelism um, program for the church. This is a corporate program, not a, necessarily a personal program. Uh, we're going to be talking about what we're going to do to enhance personal evangelism. But one of the steps that a church can take to love our neighbors and share Christ is to friendly up the church, right? And he's going to mean something different. And, and I, I think what he's going to say is good. There are, there are things that we should do to friendly up our church and make it more friendly and intelligible to, to those who, who are not believers so that when they come in here, they feel like, hey, I could hang around here, right? Oh, Doug's not going to say this, but here's one thing that I think we can do to friendly up the church. Let's be honest about our sins, right? Let's be honest about the fact that we're sinners. If you've hung around this church long enough, I know you're a sinner. And you know what you know? You know I'm a sinner. And I think it's, it's been an important function of the pulpit for the last seven years to tell you over and over and over again that I'm a sinner so that you will know that, that we are great sinners and that we have a great Savior. So I think, that, I think that part of being a friendly church, a church that is friendly to sinners, is, is that people won't come in and say, those people are too perfect for me. I can't relate to those people. They're too perfect. You know, I'm like, come and talk to me if you think these people are perfect. And I'll say, hey, guess what? Here's, I'll just, I'll, I'm not going to share names, but I'll share struggles. There's a guy who's struggling with this, a woman who's struggling with that. And we go, we got what are you, you're, you're looking for someone to identify with? We got him here. We got him. We got him. You know, nine times out of 10, I'm probably talking about me, right? We're not too perfect. We're human. We sin, but repentant sinners are like, Yes, we struggle with sin. We hate sin. Isn't sin awful? Let's kill it together. Let's do it. Let's declare war on sin as a church. Cultivate some buddies who will provoke you to repentance, but won't be shocked that you will occasionally fail and need to fight. I heard somebody say once, it's okay for the pastor to be a sinner, but he better never sin. I don't think that's who we are. I certainly hope it isn't. Uh, We ought to crucify sins. But second, we ought to stir ourselves up to do our duty. The worship of God is inconsistent with our fallen nature, and it needs to be fought for in our new nature. We, we naturally shirk and shrug off our responsibilities towards God because we were born suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, being ignorant of what God demanded of us. We, we, when we heard the demands of God, we said, forget that. I'm going to do, do this. I'm going to gratify myself. And so the worship of God is inconsistent with our fallen nature. And as we are putting on our new nature, as we're embracing who God is creating us to be in Christ, it is going to take a battle. We're going to have to stir ourselves up to fulfill our obligations towards our Lord. Charles Spurgeon said this, the Christian life is very much like climbing a hill of ice. You cannot slide up. You have to cut every step with an ice axe. Only with incessant labor in cutting and chipping can you make any progress. If you want to know how to backslide, leave off going forward. Cease going upward and you will go downward of necessity. You can never stand still. And so we need to be in the business of waking ourselves up spiritually. Psalm 57 verse 8 says, Awake my heart or awake, depending on how you translate it, my glory. Awake that which is is in me, which is of God. Wake up, heart. 
I will awake the dawn. The idea is, is, is we need to be alive and alert spiritually. Paul says this in another passage where he says, be alert, stand firm, act like men. You know, the, those, those who are guarding the, the walls of a city aren't supposed to be sleeping. They're supposed to be like, you know, hopped up on caffeine and food and ready to, to go, knowing that the enemy might come at any moment so they can sound the alarm and, and defend the city. That's the way our, our spirit is supposed to be. And we're supposed to then unite the powers of our soul. Psalm 86.11 says, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Unite my heart to fear your name. I've, I've watched many, many, many episodes of the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers and all the derivatives, right? And the show is basically like this, right? The villain sends a monster and the monster causes chaos for like 20 minutes of the episode and then at the end the power rangers show up and they're not in their costumes they have none of their weapons on and they're like let's fight this monster and that never works and then they're like let's let's put our costumes on and then they fight and then they defeat the enemy but you know what happens then the enemy gets really really big right because because he gets a second chance the the villains like make the enemy bigger and the enemy then rampages and fights you know, they always say something like, energize, or something like that, and the, and the enemy gets really big. And then the Power Rangers are like, oh, you know what we need to do? We need to unite together into the giant villain-stopping thing, right? And then they fight, and then they win, and it's like, yay, they won. Why would you just not do that first? <laughs> right? This is... As believers, so often we're like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to try to split the difference today. I'm going to try to live for myself and live for the Lord. If an evangelistic opportunity comes up, so be it. I'll share. But if not, I'm just going to kind of go about my business of, of piling up enough stuff for me and being personally at peace and, and prosperous and doing well. And so if, if God, you know, clues me into the fact that he wants me to do something today, then I'll, I'll do it, right? That's just that's stretching out the storyline unnecessarily. We ought to stir ourselves up to our responsibilities each and every day. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Are we really going to live for God today? Oh, that's so boring. You know, it's like, be quiet. Go away, this part of me that says dumb stuff like that. You be silent. Lord Jesus, kill that, please. In order to fulfill our duties, we need to know them. And of course, I've got um, a limited amount of time to share. Bricks, in order to, to do what they need to do, right? They, they need to be a particular kind of quality, right? A brick needs to be solid, right? It can't be crumbly. It needs to be hard. It needs to, to, be, to be, be able to stay in place, right? It needs to weigh five pounds or whatever. It needs to be reddish, Bricks are able to do their job because the properties required in them enable them to contribute something to the whole. And so as a believer, if, if the church is going to be effective, the believer must be a believer. A believer must be about the business of being a believer. A Christian must be actively Christian. So we must know our responsibilities. Much could be said about each, but I'm going to summarize them. Um, seven of these come from Thomas Watson's The Christian Soldier. The eighth comes, eighth comes from me because I'm, just, I'm not satisfied that his list is perfect, but it's really good. 
okay? He says that the responsibility of the Christian is to be reading the word of God. Now, by, by reading, he means absorbing the word. And so he means reading the book ourselves, battling through that. That can be difficult for some. Hearing God's word proclaimed from the pulpit or listening to it on the radio, listening to scripture, being in Bible studies. What does Jesus pray? Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So we memorize, we study, we absorb the word. We look for evidences within it. Oh, here's this desire to fight sin. That's good. Here's conviction of sin. That's good. That means the spirit is is in me and is working in me. And then encouragement. We draw that from the scriptures. We draw warnings. We find promises, truth that we need to know that we cannot see naturally because the world does not teach it to us reading the word of God. Second comes hearing the word of God, by which Watson means more like heeding the word of God. That we hear the words of God when when you hear the pastor read the scripture or when you read the scripture yourself, you don't just think that's interesting. What's on the Drudge Report or Huffington Post or what does Dr. Oz or what does the Mayo Clinic have to say about this? And then fixing that as an authority. But, but hearing the words of God's words as the words of a sovereign. Do you know that feeling when that envelope shows up that says statement enclosed and you think, oh, what could this be? Right? And you open that bill up and you pull it out and you're like, why so much? And that your heart just goes like, I am obligated to do this. You know, you know that feeling? I'm obligated to pay this back or I would get endless collections calls or, or whatever. You know, you, you feel like I must respond. That's the way we ought to hear the word of God. Not with the condemnation because there's no condemnation, but we certainly ought not to hear the demands of God's word and say, that's interesting. Maybe I'll get around to that someday. No, there is a deadline on the obedience of God's word. And the deadline is that when we hear it, we're to respond to it immediately and to say, yes, Lord, not but, 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 but. We're to hear as if they're the words of a sovereign. We're to hear to remember. If I were to say to you, come here, come here, I want to tell you something. And then I said to you, this is where the treasure is buried. Right? You wouldn't be like, that's cool. I'll come back to that when I'm ready. You'd be like, say that again. I got my, I got my pen right here. Tell, tell me. And then you'd be like, what's the zip code? You know, what's the street address? Coordinates? You know, do you, do you, okay, tell me. The words of God are precious to our souls. As Jesus had an entire crowd of unbelievers departing from him, he looked to his disciples and he says, will you go away too? And Peter said, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's the way we ought to treat God's word. We also ought to remember that this may be the last time God speaks to us. I don't just mean that in the sense of, you know, it may be glib or trite to say, you may be leaving this place and have you, if you have not heeded the words of God, you may be going to sudden judgment. That, that is true. We ought to respond to God's word that way so that our conscience is clean and so that we know that when we stand before God, we will say, I was obedient. Thank you for Christ, but I sought to make him my own. I strove because I know that you're at work within me. I strove to be, to be holy. 
but it may be the last time that God speaks to us before the test. You may leave here and walk into temptation. You may, you may head into work tomorrow and your boss may drop something so heavy on you and so tempting of such enormous pressure that if you are not ready and you have not heeded the word of God and prayed that, that he would speak to you, that, that you might be overwhelmed by sin. So it may be the last time that God speaks. So hear the word of God and heed it. Third, we ought to be praying. We ought to be coming before the Lord. Oh, you had to go there with prayer. I'm not good at it. Of course you're not. Of course you're not. Our old nature is one of independence. We deny, we fight God each and every day in our innermost being. We're called to submit and to obey. And so this means stirring ourselves up to thank God, to ask him, to adore him, to intercede for others. Do we truly, really believe the word of God? Jesus said, therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be given to you. People are like, yeah, there's a whole bunch of stuff he's not going to give you. Isn't that, haven't we just kind of kicked the feet right out under that prayer? Aren't, aren't there things that we're just not going to the Lord and asking for? We're not knocking Asking, seeking. And so James 4.2 says, you do not have because you do not ask. Why is there not revival in this city? Why are people not packing out the doors of this church? Are we honestly going to the Lord and praying that the people that we work with would be converted and that our families would be converted and that this city would be transformed and changed by the Spirit of God? Or are we saying that probably won't happen because, you know, four soils, election, all that stuff. And so we don't pray and ask for it. And yet we're commanded to. Fourth is meditation, which Watson says is a serious thinking upon God that we shut ourselves off from the world from a period of time. You can do this at Dunkin' Donuts, maybe. You can do this in your house. You know, there's generally a time in your house when everyone else is asleep and you are awake, right? You know, uh, for me, often that's late at night. For my wife, that's often early in the morning. Right? That kind of works. I'm asleep when she's up and she's asleep when I'm up, you know, doing our meditation thing. And we ought not to be like, I'm going to meditate before the Lord with my iPad because the iPad's like Facebook email, you know, email, Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, bouncing all over the place. But instead to leave behind all these things and just to seriously think upon God and to think about our own corruption and to think about the death of Christ, and to think about what, what, what the, the death of Christ means to us, and, and how that applies specifically to us, and to think about the evidences that we have for heaven. Is there evidence that I love the brothers? Is there evidence that I hate my sin? Is there evidence that I, that I love the Lord? Do I see that within me? And then to focus perhaps on the uncertainty of worldly comfort. Man, all day, I just kept on thinking, if I pay off all those bills, if I pay off all those bills, if I, if I, if I get this new thing or if I obtain this, then everything will be in order. How uncertain that is. And then focus on God's severity against sin and on the blessedness of eternal life. And then, and then make strategies for how to go into your life the next day waging war on wickedness and embracing holiness. Yeah, okay. Uh, three more. Yeah, not going to happen. Self-examination. Self-examination. 
setting up a court in our conscience and keeping a register. 1 Corinthians 11.31 says, If we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Reading through the commandments, reading through the New Testament, and then as Psalm 77 verse 6 says, making a diligent search and seeing if, if we need to confess anything, if we need to repent of anything, if we need to plan and to, to pray and to plan to act differently. What, what must be forsaken? What must be embraced? Number six is sanctifying the Lord's day. Hebrews 10.24 says, Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works and not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. I, I believe that more Christians suffer, more, more Christians embrace sin because of drift than they do because of an intentional desire to go off and to commit a sin. As, as the, the Proverbs say, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands, and then destruction comes upon them. We say, we say boy, you know, I'm just not going to show up for worship. Now here's the thing, like you're all here listening to this, and so you're like, that doesn't apply to me, but it might next week, and it might apply to somebody who you were expecting to see here, and so you should be like, hey man, or hey woman, you, you should have been there worshiping this morning. So, so show up. Sanctifying the Lord's Day. And then finally, holy conversation. I'm not going to get to mine. Holy conversation. We're to not neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Ephesians 4.20 says, edify one another. When we gather together as believers, you know what? It's so easy to gather together as believers and be like, how are the kids? And how is work? Right? And, and how is this going? And how's that going? And never to get around to what is God doing in your life? How are you seeing the grace of God going? Well, how, are you, how are you doing with that struggle? We're like, do I bring up the struggle? Give each other permission to bring up the struggle and to have that, that holy conversation. You might, you might think that to say that a Christian has an obligation or a responsibility or you, you, you must fulfill your, your part you might think that that's not consistent with grace. But let me close by, by saying this. Is duty and demand consistent with the gospel of grace? I believe it is if it's done in humility. Jesus says this in Luke 17, 7. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? The answer is no. You might be like, I don't have a servant. What did you have kids for, right? <laughs> thank you. All right. Verse 10, Jesus says, So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Is it possible that we will look to our works and, and think that they will save us and not our Savior? Yes. Yes, that is possible. But we should remember Luke 18, 9. Jesus told a parable about two men. One who stood on the temple steps and said, I tithe and I do this and I do that and I thank you that you've not made me like that wretched person over there. That tax collector right there. That sinner it says in verse 13 of Luke 18, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
Jesus says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. As the bricks, so the building. As the Christians, so the church. If we're strong in the Lord, our local church fellowship will be strong in the Lord. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to, to hear your word. And I pray that as we think about the words that have been said here, Father, may, may our, our, the focus of our heart be on the fact that we must be rightly connected to you in order to carry out our obligations. So I pray for anyone who's in here who, who has not yet repented and put their trust in Christ, and I pray that they would do so. Father, I pray also that we would remember that it is not grace to have no guidelines or commandments in our life, but rather that grace frees us to run the race that you've set before us. May we humbly, like that tax collector, repent of our sinful condition and embrace the crucifixion of our sins. And then in humility, knowing that we are unworthy servants who are called upon to fulfill our responsibilities, may we then, in humility, do what has been commanded of us. You are gracious and righteous and holy and worth serving with all that we have. And the reward will be great. And if we believe that, we will run in the way of your commandments. And so we pray that you would make it so, Lord Jesus, by your grace and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing this closing song together.